Welcome back, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 6, All Things Ankle. Mike is also back with us today. Hello, everyone. So, Mike, let's jump into the evaluation. Tell me some things that, that you look at that are maybe outside the norm or that you feel that you prioritize during your evaluation of the ankle. Uh, yeah, so like I said, I, I've been switching and working with a lot more kids now. So I, te- I tend to get more people that have already had some sort of imaging uh, coming in because a lot of times I get them referred from our kind of sports med or, or ortho docs down the hall. So big things are is like looking at for, for, for me and like the, the youth athlete, the potential for like a salt to Harris fracture versus like a lateral ankle sprain. So obviously going through like your auto ankle rules and things like that. So with, with kids, what, what you'll often see is if they do kind of that standard like lateral ankle sprain mechanism, you know, like inversion, maybe a little, a little bit of plantar flexion. Um, in adults, we tend to sprain our ATF and kids a lot of times what they'll actually have is like a salt to Harris of their like distal fibula. So they'll end up having kind of like that like big giant egg on like the outside of like their ankle at time of like initial injury. Outside of that, I mean, it's your standard. You're looking at range of motion. You're palpating things. You're looking, check basic strength. A lot of times in ankles, I don't really find like significant strength impairments with like a manual muscle test. You're not, you're not really just going to, you're not going to pick that up unless it's like pretty significant. Maybe someone that's like post-op or something like that. Um, but even like your like normal ankle sprains, I'd say like one or two out of 10 have like anything that I can maybe pick up on like a manual muscle test. Other than that, I'll, I'll they're like not too irritable. I'll look at a, um, like a single way heel race to failure and see how they do side to side there. There I can maybe pick up some endurance kind of deficits there, maybe Y balance and then just check their just kind of like general balance, just your standard progression, you know, tandem stand, single leg, firm, foam, and then kind of go from there. Yeah, for sure. All, all of those things crucial, especially in an athletic population, you don't want to put yourself in a box and only look at range of motion, manual muscle testing, all the basics. You do want to take into account those additional functional tests, like you mentioned, even, you know, drop landing, take it as far as, as you can and as far as what the, the patient needs. And again, you don't have to do all of these on day one as they progress throughout treatment, always doing your frequent reassessment, adding in these more functional tests to develop new goals and make sure that they're ready for return to play. From my end, I really like to look at swelling, figure eight swelling measurement. Even if I can't eyeball swelling, I always just measure it, um, especially in my more like chronic population where they've had chronic foot and ankle issues. They've had other hip, knee, low back issues, especially, and I don't know what it is, but in, in women postmenopausal, you know, 50 plus uh, years of age, some of them t- typically have some type of level of like, low-grade swelling at all times, and I'm not sure what causes it or what it is. Oftentimes, I catch unaddressed lymphedema in a little bit of the population that might be a little overweight. Just something that I like to measure that can lead to persistent pain. If somebody's swollen, you know, you can do all the strengthening you want, but they're going to continue to have pain and pressure through through the ankle. Another big one for me is looking at foot orientation, arch height, in both weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing. You might see someone's foot in non-weight-bearing, nice medium height arch. You get them into weight bearing. That arch collapses pretty hard, heavily pronated. Again, foot posture isn't the end all be all, but it definitely reveals some information about what the patient can be experiencing, mainly if they have medial ankle or foot pain. More than likely, they have a tension type of injury where their their post-tib is over lengthened and not able to contract at its optimal length, and that can lead to some secondary issues. So I think that's the only one, Mike, right? Manual muscle test at times and I find is weak is that, that post-tib. That's the only one that I find like ever. Yeah, yep. if, it's, um, if it's involved in, in relevant. But otherwise, yeah, everything else is usually pretty strong unless I'm doing like a neuro screen and there's some type of like neurogenic weakness. As far as like special tests, all that, I mean, they're all kind of common sense. The only left field one that... I bring up that isn't as commonly used. I like to look at Kliger's test, which is essentially external rotation to look at high ankle sprains. It's a pretty easy test to do. And to screen that out, especially with your like dorsiflexion eversion mechanisms, drop landings. And then something that I also like to look at, I mean, I'm sure everyone else does too, is, is dorsiflexion range of motion is huge in the in the ankle. You know, your ankle has multiplanar motion, so you're going to have composite motion of dorsiflexion, eversion, and midfoot abduction. And when you take away motion in one plane, you have to create motion in other planes to achieve that same 
range of composite motion. So dorsiflexion just happens to be the culprit that's going to push someone into a little bit more pronation if if they're limited. And then along those same kind of like dorsiflexion lines, I, I like looking at it uh, like closed chain. So like open chain is like fine for me, but it's not really often that open chain dorsiflexion is going to affect you. Um, so I, I tend to do it closed chain, just up against the wall, have them in like a half kneeling position, their back knee on like a foam pad, and then they're slowly sliding their foot away as far as they can from the wall getting their knee to the wall, keeping their heel on the ground. I think I initially learned it as like measure like the, um, like their distance of, of like the, the, the toe from the wall. But I've since adapted that and started to do like the angle to the wall, just the control for like the length of someone's shin, right? If someone's like a little bit taller, then it might be like misleading how far they can like get their toe away. Obviously if you're comparing like side to side, yeah. that's like fine. You can just compare side to side for the person. But if you're going off like normative values, but I think I, I, saw one paper it's like normative values was like five and a half centimeters or something something along those lines this is like way back before i was like using that as like my standard and then i just kind of got thinking you know why why if someone has like a long shin do they do they get like an unfair advantage uh, so i'd be interested of, to look at that study and see what the uh the kappa values were and how reliable that that measure actually is yeah this was probably like first year pt school that i read this so i wasn't really I wasn't really diving too, too far into that. I'll, I'll look into it. I'll, I'll get us yeah. updated on, on another episode and see how reliable that measurement is. I would say measuring the angle is, and I don't think there's a study to back this up, but just common sense would tell me it's a little bit more reliable than, than measuring the distance. All right, moving on. Any other joints that you like to look at or you feel like are important for you to mobilize? Obviously, Taylor Curl joint is number one, most commonly mobilized to restore dorsiflexion. Sub-Taylor, I always like to look at i think it can be limited and it can limit some of that that shock absorption some, some of that natural inversion eversion throughout the gait cycle and increase some joint reaction forces if not mobile and then i kind of just go down the chain i kind of just built this practice pattern of looking at the mid tarsal even the first mtp if it's limited first the I, the ip joints through the big toe making sure that they have good big toe mobility i think i talked about dizzy dean in the previous podcast where <laughs> He broke his big toe and it ruined his pitching career because he didn't have enough push-off during his pitch. So don't forget about the big toe. And then tib-fib joint mobility, very important, especially uh, after ankle sprain. So just kind of screen it, mobilize it, and move on. Anything else, Mike, that you feel like you wanted to emphasize there? In certain people, like way high up the chain, I had an eval in clinic like a week or so ago. He was referred just like foot and ankle pain. He had previously been coming in for like a concussion. He came from one of like the concussion specialists that like refers to us at a follow-up and just came back for like foot pain. And so my student and I were looking up the chain a little bit more and like checking his hips. And we did um, like Craig's test, which I've probably, probably count on one hand the amount of times I've done that since we graduated PT school. Yeah. Re- review that <laughs> test just for our listeners in case anyone's, um, you know, hasn't used it in a while. Yeah. So the patient just lies prone and then you palpate for the greater trochanter and internally and externally rotate until you feel where the greater trochanter is most prominent. And normal is going to be about eight to 15 degrees of internal rotation, I think. And his was actually more, more, more prominent in like external rotation, wow. which is like, yeah, it's like crazy. So, and then just his like total uh, like his external range of motion was like 85 degrees or so, like easily. And he had like 13 degrees maybe of internal rotation total. So we're thinking that he's probably just like crazy retroverted, real big, like toe out walk. He's, I mean, he probably walks with his feet at like a 45 degree angle, if not more. And so potentially looking up the chain at the hip. So we're going to potentially try and get him in with a, one of our hip docs down the hall and get some imaging and kind of see, see what our options are. Cause he's having kind of that typical sign where it's, uh, if, if you have a, a young kid with, with knee pain, he's also having some knee pain. Um, it's a hip issue until proven otherwise. And so when we move his hip, it creates knee pain for him. So I'm wondering if, if, if it's all kind of linked from, from the hip. So potentially getting that looked at. So just don't, don't forget up the chain, I guess is probably where, where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that would be a gnarly surgery. I think he'd have to have what a periacetabular osteotomy. Probably, yeah. And he's um, he's overweight as well, so I want, I'm not sure what that looks like. But if if that's something where they might want to get the weight under control before they do such a crazy surgery like that, 
All right, so let's move on. I don't want to spend too much time on ankle sprains. Um, one thing that I have here in my notes that I thought was at least somewhat relevant if you're big into diagnostics is that a delayed physical diagnostic examination of about four to five days gives you a better diagnostic result than a diagnostic within 24 to 48 hours. So that's going to be using like the anterior drawer to assess for ligament laxity. Just something interesting to consider if you get a negative test and you're like on the field and then like two days later you get a positive test. Uh, just something of note. Anything you want to add to ankle sprains, Mike, as far as evaluation, treatment? I think it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, outside of like little stuff like looking at, you know, like their foot positioning and things like that. Um, like sometimes you get that kind of like sinus tarsi syndrome yeah. um, that people kind of complain about. And that's going to be your people that are like super kind of like pronated and they just kind of pinch in that lateral aspect. Maybe the ankle sprain kind of sets that off or something like that. So I'll tend to um, tape their arches a little bit. I do either just kind of your like navicular sling kind of taping or kind of like more of like a teardrop method um, that I used to use like during like my, my athletic training days and see if they get relief from that. And if they do, then I'll tell them just try like an over-the-counter orthotic to start and then see how that goes. Yeah. And then I, I try to avoid, you know, having them go through the hassle of getting custom orthotics just because like, not, not that they're bad, just that the process to get them is like so annoying and such a hassle and potentially expensive depending on their insurance that I try to have them like try out something that's, you know, cheap $40 over the counter type of thing that does okay and see if they like it and then maybe do something else long term. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I rarely go to custom orthotics. We read some studies back in school that pretty much said that over-the-counter are similar, comparable to custom. Again, I don't put all of my eggs in a study just because there's so many variables and, you know, it's not something that I've critically appraised. It was just kind of like a highlight on a slide. And yeah, it's something that I never really looked at how it was conducted or, or the statistical analysis that was used. So I don't keep it as scripture. It's just something that I remember from back in the day. And then kind of your basics, make sure you hit proprioception. I think most of us do that. That's kind of a no-brainer. Screen for a peroneal strain, but you're going to work the peroneals anyway and gradually load them. So nothing too different there. Yeah, I think that that kind of covers it all. The ones that are a little bit more interesting just because of like delayed, I don't want to say delayed healing, but a little bit more prolonged recovery are going to be your high angle sprains. So this is going to be a force like external rotation combined with dorsiflexion. And these tend to take a little bit longer to come back to play. I always think about these during football season when I'm playing fantasy football. If I see a guy with a high ankle sprain, I'm a little worried he's going to be out for at least, you know, eight weeks. You know, I'm, I'm dropping him in the fantasy league if it's midseason. Yeah, I mean, that's just the the big thing there is just they have that kind of period of, of protective weight bearing. And just like any other injury, it could be a nasty one. It could be, you know, not too, too bad. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the rehab is definitely a little bit different because you're kind of guarding against that, like, hyper dorsiflex mechanism. So we talked about the importance of like restoring dorsiflexion, which like is still is super important, but maybe it's not something that you crank into fairly early in rehab the same way that you might be a little bit more inclined to with like your just basic lateral ankle sprain. Right. Yeah. And part of that too is the dorsiflexion requires for that tip fib to kind of like open up. So maybe that mechanism is what's uncomfortable and even the weight bearing requires dorsiflexion. So their, their weight bearing is tolerated for about four weeks. And you're kind of delaying that functional retraining activity a little bit more than you would with a traditional ankle sprain. can use external ankle support brace to kind of help stabilize that, that interosseous membrane, that, that joint that really just requires a lot of stability. And then as far as manual therapy goes, kind of work in that joint as the acuity and the irritability of the symptoms decrease. Mike, where do you typically um, see this injury? I know I've seen a, a lot of basketball players like landing from a rebound. Um, who else do you, do you feel like falls into this category? It's going to be a lot of that, like, you know, sports like basketball, football, things like that. Um, football, any sort of your like contact sports, right? We have the potential for the, like, that foot to get kind of folded up onto you a little bit. Kind of, it's essentially, there's like more load going into it and kind of that like dorsiflex, you know, maybe like externally rotated position a little bit with like a little bit of like extra force, like someone landing on you. Uh, I, I mean, I've only, I've only seen a couple of them. Right. Right. Yeah. And some, some differentials that you want to have include fractures of the fibula. Mm -hmm. um, particularly there's a Mycenov fracture, which is a little bit more proximal. So it's a proximal fibular fracture. And then there's a few different types of Weber fractures, which are more distal characterized through type A, B, and C, depending on where the fracture occurs. So 
One is above the level of the malleoli, one is through the malleoli, and then one is below the level of the malleoli in order of ABC, top to bottom. And the interesting thing is with these tib-fib uh, injuries or high ankle sprains, there's a lot of variability in how much edema or swelling actually occurs. So that's just something to look out for. If you don't see too much swelling, you may think, all right, well, maybe it's not that bad of an injury, but it still could be somewhat significant. Have you ever seen any of these managed surgically, Mike? Uh, I have not, actually, no. Um, they do that, like, pretty cool surgery. Uh, I think, like, two of them had it, like, a few years ago, where they, like, take that wire and essentially just, like, thread it through and then, like, I guess kind of like, recreate the, like, tip-fib ligament, like, in the, in the, like, anterior aspect of the joint, which is, like, pretty cool. And, it, I mean, he was back to playing in, like, a few weeks, right? So, and it's pretty cool surgery. I think when it first happened, I, like, read what they did during the surgery. But, I don't know, pretty much all I got at this point is they take a cool little surgical wire and kind of thread it through and recreate the ligament. It seems to work pretty well. Um, and then as far as the surgery goes, the outcomes are generally similar, but the rehab and all that part progresses more slowly so it includes a longer period of reduced weight bearing that once they do the surgery the joints stabilize and start weight bearing a little bit faster i don't know if in my mind it's worth getting a surgery to return to play sooner i think there's other implications as far as like potential for like infection scar tissue chronic pain for me i'm i'm a little bit more conservative when it comes to surgery so i would avoid it but again that may not be the right answer that's my personal bias yeah, I think it all depends on the level that the person wants to get back to, right? When you're, when you're dealing with, you know, professional athletes and, you know, they're, I mean, so like with like the whole like Tua thing, like he got back in like a few weeks. So I don't know like what the extent of his initial injury was. Like maybe, maybe like with that, with that surgical technique that Dr. Andrews did, you know, I feel like I probably, probably trust his expertise on that a lot more than mine. You know, so if he's saying let's do the surgery, I'd probably, probably, probably uh, you know, give him that power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he was back in a few weeks. So it's, you know, maybe with, with certain surgical techniques, it's, it's longer than others. Um, maybe with like the wire versus like pins or something like that. So, I mean, that brings up a good point when you're dealing with athletes, I'm thinking of like myself as like long-term health where not, not to say it'll make you unhealthy, but the athlete's circumstance definitely changes the decision-making as far as like, like you said, can I be back in four weeks? Is it my senior year? Is it, you know, the national championship coming up in two months. Um, yeah. So in my mind, if the outcomes are similar, but you can get back on the field faster and there's an end to the means and definitely justified, especially, you know, the, the study didn't mention any long-term complications. It seems like a pretty straightforward routine surgery. So yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely something to consider if the circumstance and the extent of the injury fits. Have you, um, Treated any chronic ankle instability, Mike? What's your uh, take on that? Any pearls? Yeah, I mean, it's just work them, get them strong, and get their balance really, really good. It's tough whenever it's, like, naturally unstable. The pearl is make sure if they're playing sports that they're taping and bracing. I think that's, like, the big thing. Like, 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 don't be like, oh, we're doing rehab. You don't need to tape or brace. Like, brace it, tape it, do do all, all the things to try and get some extra passive stability. Right now I have um, someone that I'm rehabbing. And she has like chronic ankle instability. She's actually having some like hip pain too, which is more the the pain issue now. But her ankles are always an issue. Um, she has a lot of pain in her hip whenever she goes to like plant her for her like free kicks and stuff like that. So I had her kind of show me like how how she does it, and she ends up going into like a fairly significant kind of like toe in position, maybe like you know fifteen twenty degrees or so of like toe in on like her point leg, and then. So obviously we're getting a little more compression of like the lateral hip at that point. And then also puts you more into a position that's more likely for you to like kind of roll that ankle. So if that's her position for free kicks, I imagine she's doing that with a bunch of other stuff as well. So working on things like step and holds and agility ladders and things like that, where she's putting her foot down constantly, but making sure that she's not going into that kind of like toed in kind of position that's going to make her you know more likely to roll her ankle and two also more likely to kind of create some compression of, of that hip so i think it's that's kind of getting you know that, that's more like specific to your athlete right we're trying to work on almost like retraining how they how they move their body to make it so they're a little bit less likely to roll and do other things and then you know like i said like taping and bracing is going to be really important and then also looking up the chain yeah um, so like, like hip strength core strength just general lower extremity strength and kind of seeing how they do there if, if they don't have good 
control of their hips, their body's just going to progress further over toward that side whenever they plant, cut, do things, and then also make them more likely to kind of roll that ankle. So that's, I guess, pearls. Yeah. And then the, the surgical intervention for it is modified rostrum repair. They use a tenodesis from the peroneus brevis tendon to reinforce the lateral ankle. And I think it has fairly good outcomes. I think it stabilizes that, that lateral ankle and provides a little bit of passive stability. So it's always an option. I haven't seen too many. I have a patient that has one currently, but I'm not rehabbing her for that. She's a little bit older, and she reports she hasn't had any issues. I kind of probed her about it a little bit, and she was satisfied with the outcome. I mean, she's had multiple foot surgeries, which at this point has led to, you know, central sensitization process. He's a little bit of sensitivity to pressure through the feet, and now I'm treating her for some low back issues, which, again, it's all related, but from an ankle stability standpoint, she seems to be okay. And then moving on to sinus tarsi syndrome. I feel like this one gets kind of overlooked, especially when there's nothing that seems to cause it or nothing obvious. I think the example that pops into my mind is I was treating this woman for Achilles tendonitis, tendinopathy, and she had intermittent swelling in her ankle and started developing like a sinus tarsi syndrome out of left field. And it kind of matched just because I had seen it a few times previously. And I'm like talking through, I'm like, all right, well, this is kind of bizarre. Like there's nothing we're doing in therapy that I think can cause it. Like talk to me about your day, blah, blah, blah. She goes, well, I've been working from home and I've been working on my like kitchen counter, like elevated kitchen countertop at a bar stool. I said, okay, that's odd. How are your feet? And she was a little bit like pronated anyways, but she was resting her feet like on these bar stools that were keeping her like in a pronated, everted position where she was just holding prolonged static compression through the sinus tarsi. I literally just said, sit in a different chair. It went away within like two weeks. There you go. Yeah, the most bizarre thing, but like you have to de- like deep dive into like people's lives and be like, all right, well, what are you doing? Like that's causing this. But that aside, it's a compression syndrome of the lateral ankle. If there's any swelling, that's going to increase pressure in the compartment, and you really want to look at your foot posture, gait analysis, running analysis, looking at anything that's going to increase either cyclic or static compressive loads through the outside of that tarsi. Yep. If I think that, that, that like compression in, in, in there is, is causing that pain, I'll tape them, see how it feels. If it does, get them something to kind of pull them out of it, just kind of like naturally, yeah, and then see if that helps. All right, let's move on to the dreaded diagnosis. I, I don't know if it's dreaded, but like I feel like a lot of people when they get this diagnosis are like, oh boy, here we go, plantar fasciitis. I love plantar fasciitis. The, the diagnosis we love to hate, but honestly, I don't think it's that bad, but I just feel like if you get one, like, one or two few cases that are just like, really tough no matter what you do that it just like persists and i don't think there's a lot of good evidence for it i know like when you look at the guidelines it's like night splinting is one of the best ones exercise has like a terrible grade i don't know mike take it away yeah i mean i don't really mind plantar fasciitis i mean i think night splinting is actually really good right because it like hurts in the morning because their plantar fascia has been in like you know your foot you kind of sleep with your foot plantar flexed right so everything kind of shortens up down there and and when you stand up and it's already kind of angry. It hurts really bad when you first start walking. Then it kind of loosens up and it feels a little bit better. So, yeah, I mean, with these people, I think it, you know, it depends on kind of like what their foot likes is, is how I'd, I might treat it a little bit differently. If, if they're kind of like that, like pronated foot with plantar fasciitis or fasciopathy or whatever the heck you want to call it, then it might work more on foot strengthening, maybe, uh, you know, foot support to kind of like raise that arch, give it a little bit more support. Yeah, versus like your person with like a really kind of like high arch that it's almost like that. You know, they just don't have like the foot mobility to kind of like absorb that shock where it's almost like it's so tight because their arch is so high when they walk, it just kind of gets overloaded there. Then it might be more of like a mobility program. Um, with both of them, I'll do some kind of like soft tissue stuff to like the plantar fascia itself and maybe some like instrument assisted stuff, which seems to help from like a pain standpoint. So working on the calves a little bit, foam roll the calves, instrument assisted stuff, do some stretching. I like to do like with like my heel raises with these people, kind of like roll up like a little towel. Um, kind of put it like under like their big toe so as they're going into like their kind of plantar flexion they're creating that kind of like windlass mechanism and getting like a little bit of a stretch on, on, on like the great toes you're kind of getting some getting some stretch there and that seems to work pretty good yeah that's uh that's like about it other than that work on balance and getting stronger yeah for sure again always want to look at i feel like dorsiflexion is like what we always fall back on but in this case limited dorsiflexion 
is going to increase the demand on other joints in the chain to dorsiflex or in this case extend. So you always want to look at limited dorsiflexion because if not, you're going to need more extension through that big toe that's going to create more tension through the plantar fascia. It's going to create that wind last mechanism. Something that I always screen on my eval is when I palpate, one of my main landmarks is I always want to look at the uh, medial calcaneal tubercle. Make sure, you know, screen that, see if that's sensitive. That's a good telltale sign that maybe it's related to the plantar fascia and not something else. I feel like plantar fasciitis is one where you really have to do your your diligence when it comes to the evaluation process because I think it gets overdiagnosed, misdiagnosed. Sometimes you'll get a plantar fascia diagnosis that isn't plantar fascia. So just kind of do your screening. Don't forget about palpating your landmarks, win last test, all that good stuff. As far as the evidence goes, I think you mentioned stretching the plantar flexors, toe flexors, plantar fascia. There's moderate evidence for that. Some deep friction massage has some moderate evidence. Manual therapy has a grade A rating. It doesn't specify this is based on clinical practice guidelines. I'm assuming this is to restore dorsiflexion. That's my best guess. Stretching of the toes, grade A rating. Taping, foot orthoses, and night splints, A. And ironically, the thing that we use the most of has an F rating. That's going to be Therax and neuromuscular re-ed. So uh, I still include it. Honestly, it's, it's important. I don't know how they came up with that rating of the studies they use, but I find that studies for analyzing a certain category or even certain program of exercise always end up coming back as comparable to a standard program. Like if you look at most systematic reviews, they're like, yeah, general exercise the same as specific targeted exercise. Now I have personal biases in that viewpoint, but I also, from an academic standpoint, understand that those systematic reviews come back that way just based on how the process of research works and that you know, you're, you're analyzing so many different studies with so many different variables. And of course, there's not going to be enough evidence from all these variability in studies to support unequivocally that, you know, a certain type of exercise is better than another. Yeah, yeah I agree. And then I think one thing you brought up was like toe stretching has like grade A evidence. So I like to do like some like toe and calf stretching with these people, take like a decently long towel and take it kind of like under like the back of their calf and loop it around like the their foot. And then when they pull on it, they're pulling their great toe into extension as well so it's like a nice little like kind of plantar fascia slash calf stretch it seems to work pretty well for these people yeah for sure i definitely like that one and then for the foot intrinsics the ones that i really like is kind of doing like arch lifts using um mtp flexion so that's like kind of flexing through the mtps but not flexing at the ips of the toe and this is going to activate the lumbricals that are deep in the foot and they're actually going to feel it like right through that arch. Some people might cramp. Other people might say like, wow, like I feel like a muscle working like right underneath where their pain is. And strengthening this muscle is just going to help support that arch. Again, this is more theoretical than like research based at this point, but it will strengthen some of those deep foot intrinsics. Yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, like I, I tend to start with a lot of that stuff. And then once they're kind of a little bit less painful, then just have them doing things on like, you know, same like stands and foam and some functional things while kind of like maintaining that arch. Yeah. Um, and like build up that strength. But early on, whenever they're kind of irritable, those towel curls are good. You can do like your normal towel curls and then kind of that lumbrical one that you talked about mm-hmm. having um, toes at like the edge of something where they have to kind of go into that MTP kind of flexion, kind of reach down over that little whatever, you know, however, however tall it is, like one inch surface, kind of grab that towel and then curl it up to them. So. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that I've actually realized because any exercise that's like new that I give in the clinic, I obviously try out on myself and like see how it feels and like make sure that it's feeling the way it's supposed to feel and for, for what I want to target. So it's pretty interesting is once I started practicing like those arch lifts, I've actually been like gently engaging it with like my squats and like side steps and like random exercises. And it actually just helps you grip the floor so much mm-hmm. better. It's crazy. And yeah, you, you definitely- work your foot the whole time. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on here. Let's talk about fat pad syndrome. Honestly, I've never treated one of these. I know that you had one, Mike, at some point. So I had a had a patient that I was supposed to eval not too, too long ago, actually. So it was a guy that just kind of like one of like the running groups that I'm, that I'm like part of had some pain. I was like, hey, you want to like kind of chit chat over like a telehealth call and see what's going on. So I spit ball with him for a little bit. And he was actually scheduled to have like a nerve ablation like the next week. And so I had never seen him. I said, you know, if, if that's what you and your surgeon talked about, I guess like you go ahead. So haven't evaled him yet. Uh, the goal was maybe he, he said that the, the recovery was going a little bit slower than initially anticipated. His, his doc still holding him out of PT. I don't know what exactly is going on. But 
eventually at some point. But yeah, essentially just like the, the fat pad kind of like breaks down a little bit and then you end up getting pressure on like the periosteum. Yeah. I wonder how much of this is related to poor landing mechanics. You know what I mean? Like if you have limited dorsiflexion and you're, let's say, like an upright runner, are you having just poor shock absorption and then getting some resultant overuse of the fat pad through the heel? Purely speculative. But I'm just trying to think from like a movement PT standpoint, because this is more like a pathoanatomic type diagnosis. Where can we bring in some like movement impairment type stuff? And Yeah. So so you have like one is like the, the overload where the guy that I'm talking about, his was more like lateral. So like I, said, I haven't worked out. I'm not sure if this is it, but you can take you can like break down that kind of like fat pad kind of like distally and like near that like fifth mat and things like that. Or you have just like your kind of more, I think probably stereotypical one would be like the, you jump and land really hard on, on your heel. Is that, is that kind of more the mechanism that you're like thinking of or you're thinking more like overload? I'm thinking like repetitive cyclic overload from poor like shock absorption during whatever activity you're doing. Um, but it also could be a stress overload, like a one-time trauma, like you're describing. I'm just purely speculating i really don't know if there's a outline mechanism of injury for it i think it's more of like a chronic gradual thing yeah i mean the thing is like the fat pad just like absorbs stress so i think it's just figuring out a way that you can offload that for a little bit calm it down and then gradually kind of build it back up right yeah isn't there an atrophy component too though yeah 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 yeah, yeah there can be all right um let's move on here tarsal tunnel syndrome i won't spend too much time on it's overpronated through the tarsal tunnel, you're getting the nerves that are overstretched, can cause some discharge, create paresthesia, might have a component of like a posterior tibialis tendonitis. There's not really too much to add there. I feel like it's kind of a component. If you wanted to get really fancy, you could maybe add like a nerve glide to it if you really want to try to like desensitize it, but I don't really think it would be necessary. I think if you calm down the inflammatory component, the nerve pain would just resolve. I think it's more of a sensitization due to tissue overload from being in a prolonged tension position during gait or repetitive tension position. Anything you want to add for tarsal tunnel, Mike? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of that same thing. It's almost not like that like pronation overload. So see how they do with a supported arch, whether that be taping or bracing, see if that helps at all strengthen their arch. And then if they're looking for like shoe recommendations, I would probably recommend um, more of like a pronation control shoe, you know, so you can do your research in different running shoes and things like that, but they all have their, you know, kind of like pronation control shoe that might help just like a little bit. And they're super flat, maybe have like some sort of arch support in there as well. You see if that helps. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, we always, we always want to think that like, you know, PT can cure all these things, but like, so it can like a little shoe insert sometimes and that's easier and less expensive. So, right. Yeah, no, it's true. But Part of that's our expertise of analyzing like the foot posture and all like I've had some foot and ankle people where they come in and I'm like, all right, like we can strengthen, we can do these things. But I think like 75% symptom reduction is going to be getting your foot in a different position. Not to say it's a better position, but it's a different position that changes how they're loading. And that in itself gets symptom reduction, gets buy-in and then, you know, strengthen them for four to six weeks and get them the mobility they need and and move on. Um, Severs disease, calcaneal apophysitis. Uh, inflammation of the apophysis of the calcaneus can also avulse in skeletally immature individuals, usually some high-impact sports, traction of the Achilles. You ever seen one of these, Mike? What's your What's your take? Yeah, I, I, I probably had, you know, maybe like six or seven of them. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's essentially like in, in kids, you know, like in, in adults, we get tendinopathy. In kids, they get these like, you know, apophyseal issues. Right, so the, the the weakest point in their chain is going to be like the growth weight. Uh, the weakest point in our chain is going to be like your tendon normally. So that's that's their stress overload. Right, so in in adults, at least with like mid portion stuff, we think just like load it, load it, load it, load it, load it, load it, and then load it some more. In kids, it's not quite that way, right? Because I don't really want to put that much stress through like essentially a fracture. So a little bit less, more just kind of like soft tissue stuff. Maybe try like a heel lift in their shoe to kind of put them in a little bit more plantar flexion and take a little bit of kind of stress off of that Achilles insertion. And then, 
Yeah, just try and like modify their activity a little bit. Aggressive stretching isn't good because you kind of like create that like, you know, compression there and then like tension of pulling, but like some soft tissue work, some foam rolling, uh, that might make it feel good. And then I'm, I'm, I'm not against like gentle stretching as long as it's, you know, not really painful at the area. Like if they go into a little bit of stretch, you'll feel, feel like a calf stretch more so than like pain at the insertion. Then I'm fine doing that. Yeah. I, I, I think I had a, a student, we were, we were treating one and it's, in like the you know your kind of like boards book right it says like don't stretch because it'll make it angry I'm like well it depends on how aggressively you stretch right so if you don't want their achilles to be going into like a place where they're pulling on the um you know calcaneal insertion and all you do is shorten their achilles then the instant they go back to something they're going to be lengthening the achilles and pulling harder so i'm gonna try and find, find a way to kind of keep moving the range of motion forward without creating too much tension on the on the injury so yep yeah 100 percent uh agree i don't think i have anything to add on that moving on next one i just wanted to touch on because i feel like every now and then you get this diagnosis in the clinic and you're like all right well what the heck am i gonna do for this um so morton's neuroma it's entrapment of the third common digital branch of the medial plantar nerve between metatarsal head three and four and you know it's basically compression of the nerve tight shoes can also aggravate i think the ones that i've had success treating is usually they are in a certain foot position where their push off is actually occurring less through the big toe and more through like the middle two through four toes and they're actually getting pressure through like a nerve bundle that runs right through those metatarsals so I've had success from just like taping and changing foot orientation. There isn't really much from like a strengthening standpoint. I do still strengthen quote unquote, but I do more like foot intrinsics, like digit strengthening, maybe a little bit of ankle strengthening, but it's more of offload the area and then strengthen to build resiliency once that area calms down. And then even just like some graded pressure, like have them gradually go into like weight shifting once the irritability is decreased to start to build some resiliency and tolerance through that area again. I think you have to take this back to the basics. Look at your stress overload principles. Did they go on a long walk? Their foot orientations in a certain way where they're pushing off through that area. Stress overload, sensitization of that nerve branch, offload, reload, and gradually build resilience. Do you ever do one of those like uh, little like, metatarsal pads? Yeah, metatar- whatever those- metatarsal pads work as well. Kind of like offload, decrease some of that pressure through there. Um, I've only seen a handful, but... I've had some decent success for like a diagnosis that I've seen on social media. A lot of people will get surgery for, and I don't know. I mean, surgery is fine too, but it's just one of those random ones where I feel like you get it and you're like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? And then the other one that I wanted to talk about, not necessarily from a rehab standpoint, more from just like an injury diagnosis standpoint, uh, did an internship with one of our foot and ankle specialists when I was a student. And I remember Big Ben had this injury few years ago, he was plantar flexed and a lineman fell on his calcaneus with a P to A directed uh, force. And I came into clinic and my instructor was like, all right, what's Ben's injury? You should know this. And I did not know it, but it was a Lisfranc injury, which is like a sprain of that second, third metatarsal there. And the rehab, I think you kind of follow your similar, similar principles based on the extent you immobilize, gradual weight bearing, all that good stuff. And and strengthen. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah you probably just caution with like your early like loaded pointer flexion, and that's pretty much it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then um, maybe a little bit of like protection when you start getting to like pushing off. You might want to retrain that push off as they start to return to like running, jogging, and pivoting, and all that stuff. Yeah. And the next one I haven't seen too often. I've seen a few, but they usually, if there's more of like a physiological explanation that's outside of an exercise related explanation, they get. Surgery and the surgery for this would be fasciotomy. We're talking about compartment syndromes. So this is increased pressure within the compartment that essentially creates pain, can create uh, nerve, nerve pain from compression of the nerve. Mike, you had any success with these? I haven't seen too many. Nah, I honestly don't think I've had any that I've had to treat. But I mean, it's, it's kind of tricky, right? I mean, like your your acute obviously is like an emergency surgery, right? So they go in and do a fasciotomy. I've had one or two there I had, I had a doctor in one of my clinicals I had a, I had a kid that uh he had like a compound tip fib fracture and it was complicated he they like cast it in he was having crazy amounts of pain they cut the cast off 
think they sent him home. It was, it was a crazy thing. He ended up going back to a different ER, and they admitted him for an emergency four compartment fasciotomy after that. And so, and that was that was kind of wild. And so after that, it was like a lot of like dealing with like with scarring and things like that. That's like pretty significant after that. And make sure it doesn't adhere and all that stuff. It was like chronic. I mean, it's just it's kind of like an overload of the tissues within that compartment. So doing everything that, that you can to make them less likely to kind of swell up within that compartment, right? So if they're weak, strengthen them, but you have to kind of be cautious that you're not going, you know, into crazy high ranges of like exhaustion and into your almost like hypertrophy type thing where you kind of go go through go through your workouts and you get that kind of like muscle swelling. Anyone, anyone who's worked out knows, knows that feeling when, when you push it a little bit hard and you walk home and look in the mirror and your biceps are twice the size as they as they were before. Trying, trying to avoid that type of response. So I think kind of just being cautious with your dosing of the exercise while trying to build the strength of the tissues within that structure or within, the, within that compartment. And then if they're like a runner, you know, you can always look at running mechanics and see if there's something that might just kind of over time target the things within that compartment. That might make them swell, and that's kind of a whole kind of nitty gritty issue for another day. Yeah, like I said, I mean, this is all theoretical at this point. Like for me, I haven't really treated too many. I don't have really any any clinical pearls, but that's kind of where I would go if one walked into my door, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's it's honestly one of those where kind of do what you can, and a lot of these that I've seen kind of comfort therapy for a few visits while they're doing the compartment pressure testing. They do the testing, it's high pressure, they release it fasciotomy, and then they come back post-op. Um, and then moving on to medial tibial stress syndrome. The main mechanisms, if you're anterolateral, is going to be limited dorsiflexion. So when you go to ambulate or when you're running, if you're getting an excessive effort by the dorsiflexors for toe clearance or excessive eccentric forces to control plantar flexion during heel strike. Particularly, you'll see this, I think they said in back in school, it was like, if you have really heavy shoes, maybe like boots or something, and you're really trying to control that heaviness via the dorsiflexor controlling eccentric plantar flexion, it's um, kind of the main mechanism there. And with these, Mike, with runners, have you seen that they're typically heel strikers, the one that developed these? Would that make more sense to you? They're heel striking and then really getting that like eccentric control of plantar flexion as they start to load? Potentially, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that, that, from like a biomechanics standpoint, that makes more sense. I mean, I've treated maybe five or six of these um sometimes i'll get it as like a it's almost like like a side thing where they have like a lateral ankle sprain and they'll go oh, i also have this thing going on or something else um but what i like to try and break it down into like what the kind of like involved tissue is right because then you're going to treat it differently like you know tibial stress syndrome is just kind of like like a crap term or like shin splints kind of it's just kind of like one of those kind of like terms that kind of could be a bunch of different things right you have your potential for kind of like that tibant kind of like eccentric overload right where like essentially the insertion of it onto the tibia like that like periosteum just kind of gets angry from like the constant eccentric pull on it then you have like almost like your like tib post kind of issue right where it's an overload of like your tib post that's going to be more on kind of that like posterior aspect of like the the like medial tibia there or it's like a true like bony overload right which i think the, those are a little bit going to be a little bit careful with those that they don't develop into something a little more sinister like a stress fracture or something like that so try, trying to kind of figure out what's the involved structure and then kind of go from there just based on all the principles that we know just kind of like you know, de-stressing the area calming it down then gradually building back resist yeah no 100 percent agree you hit it on the head there's not a lot of guidance on it but just using your clinical reasoning to kind of work through what tissues are involved and what the implications for each tissue are. I think that's 100%, right? We're closing in here on the, on the end of the podcast, so there's a few things that we wanted to touch on before ending. There's a good study that I was looking at. The summary of the, stu- the study is women with posterior tibial tendon dysfunction have diminished ankle and hip performance. Particularly, ankle plantar flexion strength was lower in women than those with posterior tibial dysfunction, and they also had decreased hip extensor and abductor performance when compared to age match controls. So I think this is kind of the story of the whole chain. I see this so much in individuals with chronic low back pain, hip pain. They always have another joint in the chain that's affect, whether it's like a knee or a knee replacement or ankle pain. It's always multi, multi-body parts, especially when it's chronic. And I think it's just when you have one kink in the chain, you have other parts of the chain that work a little bit harder. 
I see this with um, sometimes individuals that have spinal stenosis decrease like hip extension a little bit more older and chronic. They're not getting as much hip extension during gait and they're increasing this, the demand on their ankle plantar flexors and hamstrings. So they come in with this like what they would describe as like leg pain that oftentimes we interpret as, oh, that's, that's nerve pain. It's referred when really they have palpable tender points, tightness, weakness through the hamstrings, plantar flexors, and oftentimes just strengthening those muscle groups, increasing flexibility and mobility, reduces that leg pain. I mean, they're obviously still doing like the flexion biased exercises to stretch the low back paraspinals, open the foramina, but I wouldn't necessarily just write it off and say radiating leg pain, bilateral, it's referred. Um, There are some other components that can contribute, at least from a muscular and and movement analysis standpoint. And that moves me to the next point where with a lot of these individuals who I'm trying to improve their gait or um, improve their gait speed, especially my older population, I pretty much include heel raises with most exercise programs. I feel like plantar flexion, gastroc strength is huge for, for gait and just kind of for taking its fair share of the load with propelling you forward during during ambulation. Yeah, yeah, I like that as well. I, I feel like heel raise is one of those things where, like, even if I'm not targeting like an ankle issue or whatever, it could be anything like a back pain patient, something. It's like it's an it's an easy one to work in. It's almost almost like a like a superset or compound set or whatever. So you could do like some core work and then do some heel raises to like supplement it. So it, it's one of those things where it, it, it can be so easily worked into like your rehab program um, that if there's any sort of thing that you can potentially draw some weird backwards way that it might be like affecting the issue that, that you're you know dealing with, like you might as well just throw it in because it's pretty easy to do. So. Yeah, for sure. And then I'm always including hip strengthening with my ankle patients whether it's those that have posterior tibial dysfunction and they are overpronated or whatever it might be, strengthening the hip external rotators, abductors, extensors, just getting some femoral control to um, improve stability down the entire lower extremity kinetic chain, I think is beneficial. It's going to translate to more stability at the ankle, the knee, the hip. And then let's finish off here with Achilles tendon pain. Um, Without getting too much into it, you're going to do your gradual loading is is this where you're using the heavy slow resistance as well, Mike? You've kind of transitioned out of the eccentric stuff and more to heavy slow resistance. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Depending on what the patient's like access to equipment is, depending so like certain insurances, it might be tough to get enough visits uh, that they can come in, you know, multiple times a week, which would be ideal for that heavy slow resistance. So if it's someone that doesn't have access to equipment, I might still work on more like the kind of like eccentrics if they're if they're pretty strong right and just kind of using their body weight doesn't really feel like heavy slow resistance to them but i mean i ideally you do your heavy slow resistance you know your four sets of eight two minutes rest in between go from there and then from there you can work back into like your jumping and hopping and just kind of standard you know return to sport progression at that point uh, i like to use like some agility ladder stuff uh, maybe some kind of like kind of like springing on their toes over some little lines on the floor to work on building up like the stiffness of that tendon if they're looking to return to sport. So yeah, I mean, definitely heavy slow resistance is like, I think has become the the gold standard. And and if you're not doing it, maybe do it. And then from that, from that point, once you get kind of through that phase where they're able to kind of tolerate some fairly heavy load, then, then working back into more kind of sport specific stuff. Working on building up like the stiffness of that tendon so it can handle those rapid loads as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I don't know if we talked about in a previous podcast doing like step and holds, but I really like step and holds as far as getting that dorsiflexion to absorb the ground reaction forces, but then also improving the impact and shock absorption of the gastroc as it passively stretches into dorsiflexion as you land. I think. That's a good one. I had a gastroc strain a while back where she was like, yeah, I have pain descending steps or just pain on steps. She described it. And like our mind typically goes to like, oh, she has pain going up steps. Maybe it's like the push off from going up. But for her, it was actually the passive like weight acceptance where she was like rapidly going into that dorsiflexion and that rapid stretch of absorbing her body weight through the ankle. So it's just something you want to add is to add some like shock absorption. Obviously, we're going to go back to like our jumping progression anyways if they're athletes but just something of note that kind of triggered that thought from that case and then kind of off the beaten path we want to think about well you don't have to think about it it's just more of a random thing is an os trigonum is a bony growth just kind of like underneath that achilles above the calcaneus 
can cause posterior impingement. They kind of just go in there and take it out if it doesn't resolve conservatively. There's really nothing of note or different that you would do with your rehab. And then with Achilles tendon ruptures, the only thing that, that I'll get into, we won't get into the rehab as far as post-op, because maybe we'll do some like specific post-op rehab podcasts just related to different surgeries. But the thing I found interesting, Mike, we read a study during one of our journal clubs that demonstrated that for the non-active, just like everyday population, that conservative non-surgical treatment was equal to surgical intervention, and that the only difference was uh, plantar flexion strength at higher higher angular velocities. And that would be more relevant for your athletes who need to have a rapid force contraction at, at those high angular velocities. But I thought that was interesting that you can actually manage conservatively. Yeah, yeah that, that was, I think, one of those kind of like, I, I kind of did that little like kind of yeah, yeah. look whenever we like read that study. I'm like, uh, yeah, it's like you literally don't have like your calf. Right, right. <laughs> you just like can't. So it's, I don't know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of was weird. I guess like what, like your tip post and like maybe your... I don't know if it, if it ends up kind of just like healing on its own. I think it would depend on the approximation of how far like that tendon recoils up the leg. Um, exactly. But if it's like a full rupture, you like, you have to imagine that it's going to snap up pretty far. Like, like I, I, I felt I think only one, maybe full rupture. Someone on like a Frisbee tournament that I was at and kind of like looked at it. And when I palpated, I, you know, felt like her calcaneus, maybe like a teeny bit of like the tendon down low. And then my hand just sunk in for about three inches. There was just nothing there. So like, that's not going to heal. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way those ends are approximating at that point, right? So, I mean, if that's indicative of what they all feel like, it's I can't imagine they're approximating, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, but just an interesting study that I kind of raised my eyebrows at when uh, when we read it. Uh, but that aside, I think that covers everything that that we wanted to discuss during this podcast. This will end season two. Mike and I are going to brainstorm some unique ideas for season three. Probably won't come out for a little bit of time. There's a lot of moving pieces in our, in our lives right now, so um, we'll probably pick this back up maybe in the fall. That sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Well, we just want to thank you guys for listening to Season 2. If you're enjoying the content, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Comment on our page if you have any questions, if you want access or want us to give you any of the research articles that we cite. I try not to make it too nitty-gritty with like rattling off citations and hopefully making it more conversational. But again, we like to try to stay evidence-based as much as we can. And if there's anything that you guys haven't heard of or you want us to, to back up with some evidence, just reach out. We won't be offended. Thanks, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.